Okay. <clears throat> Good evening, friends, to the seventh part of the series of the State of Gender Equality, hashtag Gender Gaps, uh, brought to you by Gender Impact Study Center at the Impact and Policy Research Institute, Delhi Post News, uh, Gender Center for Research and Innovation, and Cinemakers International. These are collaborators with IMPRI. Uh, today we have, um, you know, uh, Dr. Sangamitra Acharya, who is a professor in the Center of Social Medicine and Community Health School of Social Sciences, Jawaharlal University, New Delhi. She was chairperson of the center during 2018 and 2020, and director Indian Institute of Dalit Studies, New Delhi, during 2015-2018. She started a career teaching career in 1990 when she joined the International Institute of Population Sciences. Mumbai as assistant professor. She has been a visiting fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, China, 2012, Ball State University, USA, 2008-2009, University of the Philippines, Population Institute, Manila, the Philippines, 2005, East-West Center, Honolulu, Hawaii, 2003, and University of Botswana, 1995-1996. She was awarded the Asian Scholarship Foundation Fellowship in 2005 to research on health and sexuality among the Filipino youth. She published a book and two papers comparing the young people in the Philippines and India based on this research. She has traveled widely to countries like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, the USA, Canada, and Finland in academic pursuits. She has chaired sessions, given keynote addresses, and attended national and international conferences. She has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals on the issues of health and social exclusion, with focus on youth in development, gender in urban spaces, and Northeast India. Her current research is on social discrimination and exclusion in access to resources among sanitation workers. This is a multi-city study conducted in Ahmedabad, Bhubaneswar, Delhi, Gangtok, Nagpur, and Surat. She has three books and about 30 articles to her credit. Her recent works include co-edited books titled Marginalization and Globalizing Delhi, Issues of Land, Labor, and Health 2017, and Health, Safety, and Well-Being of Workers in the Informal Sector Labor, Lessons for Emerging Economies 2019, both published by Springer. She has also been invited for discussion on radio and television. Her recent publications in popular media on COVID-19 range from Islam Times Outlook to Gender Forum to Youth Kiawas Counterview and Countercurrents, where she has expressed her anguish on the issues of migrant workers, sanitation workers, women, students, elderly, and the other vulnerable populations. Her views have been quoted in India Today, Al Jazeera, Russian newspaper, Izavestia, and BBC Hindi. She teaches courses on research methodology, health services, and the community, population issues and family planning program in India, social science issues and community health and social sciences towards an integrated approach, urbanization and public health and population health and development. Friends, today we have Dr. Sangamitra Shilacharya talking on a very important topic called, uh, this is comparing COVID-19 and gender divide. Uh, so over to you, Dr. Um, Sangmita Acharya, and friends, after that, we'll have uh, question answers, and then we'll also have a word from uh, Govind Kelkaji, who's also chairing the session. So over to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Singh. Um, first of all, uh, I really want to thank Impri for uh, giving me this opportunity to share some of my ideas 
with the community that IMPRI has really impressed. And I can see the participants uh, who have been part of your earlier lecture series too. So thank you very much for that. Uh, perhaps what I'm going to do is to bring on board uh, some of the thoughts which have come to my mind as uh, I have uh, read about COVID-19 as I worked on certain areas vis-a-vis uh, -vis gender and development, uh, particularly from the lens of health, since that's my area of work. So I'm just trying to perhaps uh, put some of these ideas together. I'm drawing largely from uh, the international publications which are uh, talking about or giving us information on COVID-19, what COVID-19 has done to uh, men and women of different uh, vulnerabilities, a uh, couple of papers that I have uh, managed to write on this issue, and of course, uh, the data that the ministry has provided, provided us with. So uh, I'm just going to perhaps put all of these together and raise certain questions in uh, how do we actually uh, think about women, uh, particularly in the in, in context of uh, what we are trying to understand as gender divide. And given the fact that we are in a kind of social setup, wherein this gender divide is not anything new, we, we perhaps have learned to live with it. Uh, of course, uh, there are struggles to minimize the divide though. So uh, that's perhaps what I'm going to do uh, through, the, through the discussion, through some of the slides that I would want you to uh, run through as we move ahead in what I share with you. So, okay, I think I have to move uh, backwards to the... First slide, yeah. Yeah, okay, so... I'm trying to move back. <laughs> yeah, I think it had no issue. No? Yeah. I don't know. Yes. So, uh, these, uh, these things become uh, quite uh, intimidating, I if I can use the word <laughs> that way. So, uh, as it is like doing the class on, uh, on uh, you know, speaking into the screen itself is uh, yes. you know, very disturbing. Uh, so. I know, I know, I know. But my very beautiful slides. Yes, ma'am, please. Yeah. They'll make as much sense too, I hope. Okay, yeah. so, <laughs> so here I am trying to perhaps uh, point to us uh, how, uh, what have been the efforts to uh, recognize what the pandemic has been. And mm -hmm. in this recognition, where do we place uh, the differentials that uh, have come forward from the very social stratification, from the very gender stratification in which we are located as a society? So from that perspective, perhaps I would want to uh, question uh, the very idea of uh, most often when it is said that uh, disaster, disease, uh, these are the uh, elements which don't seem to be discriminating. But uh, when we look at the outcomes, when we look at the consequences of these events, be it disease or disaster or, uh, or anything of uh, you know, sudden calamity that happens, we see that those who are vulnerable, be it women, be it poor, be it those uh, on the social ladder at the lowest rung of the social ladder, are the ones who are most badly affected. Now, so for that context, uh, perhaps I'm sure uh, I would want to therefore argue 
that in this process of uh, how it translates itself, how a pandemic, for example, translates itself in affecting men and women differently brings out those, uh, brings out that divide, places that divide, and therefore we need to uh, respond to it separately also with different kinds of strategies that we need to put in. And therefore, to respond to a crisis such as this, it is important to have a, a, an approach which encompasses inputs from the society in, in a totality. You know, uh, you have to perhaps bring on board the very uh, set of women who are vulnerable and those perhaps who are, uh, you know, the gradations of vulnerability across men and women for sure, but even among women, when we see the gradations of vulnerabilities differ given their propensities vis-a-vis -vis economic propensities, given their propensities vis-a-vis -vis their social status. So it is perhaps important to see how do we look at uh, the social context, the political and economic context in which uh, the response to COVID-19 has been encased not only in the country but also at the global at the global levels and that's where perhaps we draw uh, I wish to draw from the documents which have been internationally uh, collated together based on the national data and they tell us that uh, the pandemic certainly has impacted women and girls in a far more vulnerable ways than perhaps men and the boys and therefore okay. perhaps to combat the pandemic, we need to have different kinds of strategies. The first thing which comes to my mind in this context, therefore, is the very idea of the empirical information which has been generated for the pandemic per se. And uh, when we look at the, when we look at our data set, which is uh, what the ministry and the state uh, bodies have been releasing, it's appalling to note that uh, the gender disaggregated data is not yet available to us. If you look at the uh, UN Women website, which is collating the data for pandemic in terms of gender, we as a country have not been able to provide gender disaggregated data. Therefore, we don't list there, we don't figure there. The gender disaggregated data that we have at our disposal largely comes from the uh, crowdsourced uh, uh, agencies, crowdsourced data that has been collated. Therefore, uh, uh, much of the information that we have at the moment comes from UN Women and the WHO, who have been trying to collate data and empirical evidences from various countries to put together uh, and have a perhaps consolidated concern uh, that can be uh, put forth in terms of uh, the responses that the countries uh, individually and global response to can be generated. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we uh, take cognizance of the fact that the very basis on which policies can be made itself is a bit of a, you know, uh, it's still not there in place, perhaps it becomes very, very important to consider what all has the pandemic done to the women. The first thing which comes to my mind is uh, how uh, women become, have become more vulnerable because of the pandemic, during the pandemic. Violence against women hasn't been anything new. It's always been there, but pandemic has further made them more vulnerable. 
And if I quote uh, from the UN Women itself, uh, about 250 million women uh, have uh, experienced some kind of uh, violence against them uh, before the pandemic. And since the pandemic has broken, there has been a, there has been further increase. And much of the increase perhaps has been reported to have occurred because of the measures which were taken to take, take on board uh, the, the, the ways through which the pandemic can be controlled, one being staying at home. Now, staying at home with somebody who has, uh, you know, who could be the perpetrator of the violence against women could have been one of the more, one of the major reasons to have escalated the, the violence that was experienced during, uh, during these uh, pandemic times. So uh, when it comes to uh, women who could be, uh, say, for example, who are at the front line of the pandemic as, uh, as doctors, as uh, subordinate level workers, uh, right from, let's say, the nurses or to the cleaners in the hospices, or they could be uh, in the inform, much of the women are in the informal sector in the less developed and the middle income countries, we know that, unlike the developed countries where uh, in, in informal sector there are more men. But in our case, we have more women over there. So to, to bring those women on board in terms of uh, what could have happened vis-a-vis uh, the stop that occurred, everything that got stalled because of the pandemic-induced uh, lockdown, for example, uh, a lot of women had to navigate through all those uh, problems in terms of uh, making sure that uh, they will be able to overcome the problems which were which were induced because of the scenarios which the pandemic brought on, uh, placed in, in, in front of them. So uh, it's not only uh, that women who are in these essential and, and uh, essential services, even those particularly more of them who are in the informal sector, their risk to violence, to be exposed to violence, uh, got kind of exaggerated. And I'll come there in a short while as we go ahead with some of the data that we managed to put together. So it's important to take note of the fact that uh, these vulnerabilities therefore have also impacted upon uh, their economic propensities and therefore also their uh, exploitations which could have happened both in terms of physical as well as uh, viabilities which could provide them some kind of uh, economic uh, remunerations. So uh, moving ahead from there, uh, something which therefore becomes very important to uh, take cognizance of when we disaggregate uh, the data on uh, COVID-19. Uh, very, very starkly, we note that when it comes to the world scenario, we have about 47% uh, women versus 53% uh, men. But when we look at uh, our scenario, we have 35% uh, women who have uh, been exposed to uh, the, the pandemic or have contracted the pandemic as against 65% of men. So uh, the, the pointer here could be, and we probably need, need to take note of, in the backdrop of the priority, which is given to the health of women. Now, in that, with that question in the back of the mind, 
uh, we might want to uh, again question the figures that are at us or, or, or the difference that is visible in terms of men versus women or the ratio that we see in terms of men and men versus women in India vis-a-vis -vis the global scenario. So, and we know fairly well that the priority uh, to women's health is fairly low and therefore there is a likelihood that uh, by the time uh, you've responded to uh, taking cognizance and uh, uh, the, the required uh, health care has been received, uh, uh, the, 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 there is the possibility of a lacuna over there that the reporting could be of a miss. Contrasting that with uh, what is the kind of uh, healthcare support that we have uh, perhaps uh, put in place. Uh, something uh, which is very, very important. Sorry, excuse me for this. Sorry, that's the problem of working from home. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the point I was making is, uh, uh, when we started gearing ourselves up in terms of responding uh, to the COVID scenario as early as uh, May, if you look at the information uh, that we have vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the kind of support uh, in terms of the facilities, in terms of the personnel that were available to us, uh, isn't very uh, kind of um, you know, assuring. We had just about 0.53 uh, persons, if we can, if we can think in terms of the physicians per thousand population. Uh, we had 0.8 hospital beds per thousand population, and nurses and midwife again, it's 0.31. So uh, I, I should have probably contrasted with a couple of other countries. Even our neighboring countries seem to be faring a little better than us for that matter. And perhaps this also uh, reminds us of the fact that when we look at the uh, public spending in health, we still are fairly low, 1.17% of the total uh, GDP that we kind of put aside for health. So perhaps that gets reflected in the kind of support we, we have at the moment or we had at the time of uh, this uh, pandemic approaching us. So in that backdrop, I think it also becomes very important to take note of the time that we took in putting in place the, uh, the system that was required. So what, we, what, do we, what do we see by the time we kind of uh, move forward into April uh, and uh, May and June? We have uh, three tiered uh, first facilities which are put in place. There are dedicated COVID hospitals, dedicated COVID health centers, and dedicated COVID care centers, which are put in place. As per the hospitals, they were uh, to offer the comprehensive care uh, primarily to those who, who could have kind of contracted and therefore uh, at, at the highest tier, they, they, were, the, they were the units to, to, serve that, uh, to serve the infected people. And then uh, you had the health centers wherein uh, any symptoms of clinical, any clinical observations with moderate kind of uh, reflections could be taken uh, on board. And then you had COVID care centers, uh, which were a little uh, kind of, of milder uh, nature. So uh, they, they were at first being made by the state uh, in order to put uh, certain kind of structures which would uh, address COVID. <clears throat> 
something which we probably take to take, need to take note of was that alongside COVID, other morbidities also existed, other mortalities also existed, and they were happening simultaneously. But what happened was that much of the support system was geared towards COVID for, for all practical reasons. And therefore, the information of what was happening to these other morbidities and other mortalities, uh, we, we kind of uh, have a very, very uh, patchy kind of information on that. Nevertheless, by the time uh, we get into, uh, let's say, early, early May, we have more than uh, 7,000 facilities spread across uh, nearly 500 districts. Uh, which included uh, the, from the range of isolation beds to uh, beds for the confirmed cases, to suspected cases, and of course the oxygen supported beds with also uh, other facilities with oxygen manifolds, et cetera, et cetera. And in May, the rate of test was something to the tune of 300 to 350 tests per day. And today in the morning news, what, I, what, what the news caption says, we have reached the number which is to the tune of about 15 lakhs per day, the tests are happening, okay? So, uh, uh, and of course the recovery rate, recovery rate for us has always been better than most other countries right from the beginning. And today, in fact, we, we, we're close to nine, more than 90% of the recovery. So uh, something which perhaps becomes, uh, or rather uh, I would want to raise that as a point for us to think, you know, given the kind of, uh, uh, if I may say, poor healthcare system that we had, uh, to my mind, it probably was more appropriate to concentrate on the illnesses which were critical, the cases which were critical, because much of that which later on subsequently uh, the, the, the guidelines seemingly have uh, imbibed on, taken on, uh, if we had, if we had uh, concentrated on the critical cases, perhaps the required uh, uh, infrastructure, required support from the health system could have been concentrated to address that rather than spread it all across, even uh, when the care could have been provided at subordinate levels by subordinate workers, even in terms of home isolation also. Nevertheless, this is how we perhaps moved ahead and this is where we've reached in terms of the changes that we probably saw. Now, something which becomes more important to my mind is to see the difference uh, between the uh, private sector care provisioning and the public sector care provisioning vis-a-vis -vis COVID-19. Now, uh, the difference anyway exists when we come to public and private sector uh, service provisioning. Uh, most of the time, uh, we believe that private sector is going to offer us better services and uh, public sector uh, is crowded. It doesn't serve us, uh, uh, kind of give us the kind of services that we may require. That's the popular notion about public sector versus private sector healthcare provisioning. But if we look at uh, a lot of literature suggests just the opposite. We still have 
uh, access to care being provided by the public sector to a much larger chunk of our population as compared to uh, the public sector. Nevertheless, uh, uh, despite the fact rather that we have almost double the number of uh, uh, facilities in private sector that, that are there in the public sector. So while private sector kind of geared itself up for uh, uh, addressing the requirements of the COVID-19, what is notable that the cost incurred to avail from the private sector was far more than that which could have been made available through the public sector. In fact, public sector was virtually free of cost. So, so what was needed, uh, what was perhaps still uh, not in place very strictly was the regulation of these pricing mechanism for the services which were being uh, put together in the private sector right from the testing to offering the bed and the services related to bed in terms of uh, in terms of oxygen cylinders, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or everything that was related to it. So uh, that was something uh, very very important to take note of, and I, I, I really wish to put this very categorically because uh, while the number of uh, private sectors are almost twice uh, in the country as compared to the public sector, uh, what's important to note is when when it comes to the health insurance. It's very, very important to note that uh, almost 80 to 85% population across rural and urban areas is not covered any under any kind of insurance. So with that kind of backdrop, if we have uh, options, uh, way poor options to opt from the public sector services, uh, it really becomes difficult to kind of uh, be sure of where I will be able to fend for in terms of my health. So uh, this was something which really needed to be kind of taken note of. In addition to that, there are also evidences, particularly in the public sector, if I may, uh, if I may draw from uh, the health statistics, uh, the, the kind of uh, positions, the number of positions which have been left uh, without being fulfilled, the positions are still vacant. Uh, that also perhaps added to the uh, to the burden which pandemic had caused on the health sector uh, with the care that was, that was needed to be taken. Now, in all of this backdrop, when private sector care is uh, more expensive, uh, perhaps more challenging also to most of the population uh, in the country, and with the priority given to women's health care, at a much lower rung, uh, there is a likelihood that the care which could have been provided was not being able to, pro to be provided because of the constraints which were therefore generated vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this kind of scenario. So uh, when, uh, when uh, the, the pandemic uh, started reflecting its, uh, you know, when we start uh, kind of looking at what is, what happens vis-a-vis uh, vis uh, vis as a result of the pandemic, as, as, as a result of inaccessibility to certain kinds of resources which could have been useful for women, which could have made uh, any, any indent in terms of their health and in terms of their identities, individual selves also. Uh, the worst thing perhaps that could have happened is 
the very logic of staying at home and i, I and i am connecting it with the whole idea of uh, the violence against women because uh, i i said in the earlier also uh, if i had to stay with uh, somebody who would have, who was the perspective uh, uh, you know proponent of the violence against me perpetrator of the violence against me uh, staying home alone uh, without any connect with the outside world which was available to me otherwise in case of any violence that could have been done to me uh, as an individual as women who were exposed to such violence it it was very very difficult to move ahead with so that kind of risk uh, exposure to the risk of violence further exam kind of got increased uh, and on the other side it was also evident that uh, perpetrators could also and it's reflected through the studies which have come up even the ncw's data suggests the same uh, that the very idea of restrictions due to covid-19 were used as as a as a as a control over women who were exposed to uh, the kind of violence you know as as a, as as men uh, who would be engaging in violence against women the fact that they were the they were the ones uh, ensuring whether women can move out or not move out of the house can seek help or not seek help moving out wasn't possible in any case with the kind of restrictions on movement so these were the issues which which have yielded the kind of vulner or enhanced the vulnerability of of women uh, as against the Uh, otherwise such scenarios and they have also led to the kind of anxiety and stress which uh, which has has kind of been brought about so uh while movements restrictions on movements have impacted on any kind of redressal access access to services which could have allowed redressal into the kind of violence which could have been otherwise avoided it it aggravated it and therefore uh, sometimes in the pretext on the pretext of this even the essential items were uh, denied to the women for that uh, in in that sense information wasn't uh, also shared so some of these become very very uh, kind of detrimental for women vis-a-vis the pandemic uh, uh, another aspect of violence against women if we if we kind of zero in on domestic violence uh by uh, by the global figures we get to get a sense that during the pandemic uh, almost uh, 25% surge was recorded uh, across board while uh, while before the pandemic uh, you know it was less than 40% of women who kind of experienced and reported violence we see that uh, post pandemic uh, if we if we take on some of the countries singapore for example i mean we we perhaps imagine it to be a more civilized quote and quote and we see the the level uh, at which uh, domestic violence has increased over there so and in our case uh, we see that it's almost like 100% increase in reporting of the domestic uh, domestic violence against women during during the pandemic so something which perhaps becomes very important to also notice that to uh, perhaps uh, when as a working woman you moving out you are also escaping the chances the probabilities of that violence being 
kind of stretched out against you. So the closure of uh, non-essential businesses also kind of uh, took away the respite that women could have uh, received in case they were working in those uh, businesses, right? It's only the essential services which were uh, continuing to work, the banking and the cleaning, uh, to my mind, the two, that, and of course, the health sector. So uh, this became, this further aggravated the kind of uh, uh, secure insecurity uh, which could have uh, made uh, women far more vulnerable than they could have been, than they were before the pandemic. Uh, and and uh, just to kind of 30% uh, anyway translate, uh, we, we know that one in three women globally have at any given time point face some kind of violence against him. And most of them, it is most of the time it has been by their people who are known to them, 92% in our case, in fact, the sexual violence occurs to them, to, to the girls and women by people who are fairly well known to them. So uh, pandemic seemingly has aggravated these chances. So when we when we think of when we take note of what is what was happening uh, or we zoom in into what was happening to women in India, uh, one third, uh, like I said, uh, global scenario and very much uh, in our case also, thirty one percent of uh, ever married women have uh, kind of reported to have been subjected to any kind of violence by their intimate partner. partner. Like I said, uh, way back in uh, April, May itself, the NCD, National Commission of Women, uh, mid-April, uh, came out with the information uh, in terms of the calls that were registered, vis-a-vis -vis the complaints, uh, almost increased by 100%. And what was interesting to note that uh, because, of course, uh, mobility was restricted, so my, most of the complaints, in fact, all the complaints were through uh, electronic medium, email, and the WhatsApp number, which was, uh, which was kind of given. So something which uh, kind of, uh, when, when the proposal to stay at home was used or suggested to, uh, to address the pandemic, it was largely to ensure that there is, uh, the, there is uh, the communication, the interaction between human beings individuals will minimize, which will therefore arrest the spread. But perhaps it did that also. But what was detrimental in that doing was leashed out more broadly and more uh, necessarily on women and the girls, uh, as evident as compared to perhaps uh, men for that matter. So this was something which was which we perhaps need to note. Something which also becomes important to take note of is the fact that those women who could manage to kind of uh, uh, take up something in order to uh, register the complaint, to go beyond uh, the complaint that has been registered and see that something happens to, uh, to that rare complaint that has been done, the result was that all the system, all the arms of the system were taking care of COVID and therefore other alternatives which were required to take these case, cases further, take these complaints further, really were uh, taking much longer time or were taking, uh, were perhaps uh, put on the back burner when it came to the redresser. 
So some of these things became very, very uh, important, become very, very important to take note of. Then if you look at women uh, who engage as <clears throat> care providers, uh, we note that uh, globally and even within the country also, we see more women engage in uh, healthcare provisioning. 70% of them are of the care providers are women. But very dramatically, we see that when it comes to the bodies in decision-making, they're just about 70% of women who participate in any kind of uh, decision-making. And the, the best of uh, you know, the countries uh, where, uh, where we see higher uh, infections happening, this Spain and Italy, for example, the scenarios aren't very different. Also, uh, perhaps to take note of uh, European countries whom we probably project as uh, better than ours still have also have a similar kind of scenarios. So, but what is important to uh, perhaps then question is when women are contributing uh, a lot in terms of uh, uh, their, their share as uh, members of the health workforce, uh, particularly uh, as uh, those who are at the front line as nurses, as midwives, as workers at the, uh, as frontline workers, uh, ranging from uh, the cleaners, the launderers, et cetera. Uh, we do not take count of the kind of work and the kind of exposure, therefore these women have exposed, have got as uh, care providers of the COVID. Now, if the proximity to the infected is something which is important in contracting the infection in, in kind of uh, taking care of the disease, it's also important to note, therefore, that those who are at the subordinate levels of uh, care provisioning, and majority of them are women, are also therefore exposed to the, uh, to the, to the, infection far more than than the than what the men could be they are paid much less than their main male counterparts and like i said they hold much fewer leadership positions any positions in the decision making bodies interestingly when we when we've been talking about the uh, personal protective equipments etc a lot had lot has been said about it lot of uh, lot of uh, uh, you know, additional PPEs have been brought in also. I think we started considering that way back in March itself uh, and the ministry uh, on the recommendation of uh, uh, Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, the, the mask, et cetera, were uh, kind of all uh, requisited and put in place. What's important to note is most of the time, the size of the masks and the protective gears are more attuned to the male bodies as compared to the women bodies. So, so even if the, the equipments are available, they're perhaps so ill-fitting that they don't really support work. They rather obstruct work than uh, support work. So therefore the first thing perhaps we need to take note of therefore is to ensure that uh, something that sensitivity towards the needs of the women, the gender sensitization among those who are requisiting equipment such as these, those who are sitting there to create uh, policies such as these have to be there. PPE is supposed to be very, very uh, unfriendly even otherwise. And with that, 
you know, maintaining menstrual hygiene, for example, uh, the sweat and, uh, you know, using the laboratory, etc., had been uh, reported as big problems while using the PP. So I think that becomes something very important to take note of, particularly in case of women providers, because uh, another, another thing which becomes important is, is the flexibility in the time uh, of their service hours, uh, particularly because they are uh, also uh, responsible to their familial roles far more uh, in, in a far broader way than the men. Uh, we, we all know very, very conventionally when women come back from work, they are the ones who also will enter the kitchen to ensure dinner on the table, to ensure lunch on the table. Whereas men need not necessarily be responsible for it. So those kind of flexibilities also need to be uh, put in place vis-a-vis uh, -vis women workers. Now, <clears throat> if we look at uh, if you look at the scenario vis-a-vis uh, -vis our situation, uh, something which is uh, very very important uh, gets reflected very very similarly as it has been in the global scenarios. We have. Uh, uh, a larger share of women in the health workforce who are at the subordinate levels as compared to the higher levels. So if you look at the ratios that I'm, I'm sharing here with, uh, when we look at the doctor's ratio, uh, it's 5.1 to uh, one women, 5.1 male doctors to one female doctors. When we look at the subordinate level nurses and midwife, we see it much, much Lesser. So the point again, therefore, is that the nature of work vis-a-vis uh, -vis that is attributed to women and their role in the decision-making bodies do not gel well enough. And therefore, perhaps the gaps in the kind of uh, uh, requirements, the, the, the support that is needed in terms of uh, elaborating on the working hours, in terms of elaborating on the kind of equipments they could be requiring, does not seem to be uh, getting reflected in the, in, in the outcomes. So, <clears throat> So that perhaps becomes extremely important for us to uh, take, take note of and consider, consider that. Uh, you know, if, we, if we look at um, uh, some of these uh, uh, issues when, when we try to disaggregate what's happening to men versus women, you know, uh, we all would agree that when it comes to uh, access to decent work, uh, you know, and uh, you know, the kind of benefits which can be accrued, such as uh, health insurance or unemployment benefit or other social benefits. Uh, worldwide, we see that uh, out of 2 billion workers uh, in informal employment, uh, just about uh, 740 million uh, are women. And like I said, in developing countries, there are uh, lesser women who are in the informal employment as compared to middle and less income countries. So if we contrast this with what is happening uh, closer home, uh, we see that uh, uh, the women in the informal sector are far more than men, if we, if we can disaggregate that. Now, uh, if you see uh, among those workers, what's very important to note is like about 82 to 83% of them have no written contract. 
So in any case, you are in the informal uh, you know, format of work and there's no written job contract. You are not eligible to, uh, to a quarter of them, one fifth to about a quarter of them are not eligible for any kind of paid leave. Uh, there's no social security which, uh, which uh, can, can be availed by these men and women. And of course, uh, if you look at the uh, health insurance uh, quoting the NFHS data, we see it's just as low as about uh, 29%. And that's for the overall population. We can, we can kind of uh, make a rough estimate about what could be happening to the, uh, to the population in the informal sector. So in this broad drop, I think uh, prioritizing women's health uh, takes a very different kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, priority uh, the uh, priority perhaps doesn't remain anymore uh, as uh, as to be given to women's health so <clears throat> so uh, why this also happens has something to do with uh, something which is happening at the global level also if we look at uh, the most poor across the globe uh, half of them are women and girls and they are the ones who are living on less than $2 a day. Now, <clears throat> with this kind of economic propensity and the kind of uh, uh, measures that have been taken to curtail or to combat the pandemic, there is a likelihood that the, the vulnerabilities are accentuated for, for these women and these girls. Particularly when we see that women are, and girls anyway, have had have had certain um, you know uh, access to certain resources is already restricted for them in many many scenarios. Say for example, those who are uh, in the in the conditions of poverty will will have restricted access to let's say clean water or perhaps uh, toilet facilities. And much of the violence against women, uh, let's take note of, is reported uh, while using a public toilet, particularly in uh, developing countries, South Asian scenario, for example, if I may quote from there. So uh, the, the, the propensities which uh, could make, uh, could reduce vulnerabilities, uh, are just not there and they're very, very bleak opportunities to improve upon those, uh, uh, those conditions also. So uh, in that backdrop, health <clears throat> healthcare systems are already overburdened. Uh, without that, without any support for availability of uh, clean water, uh, you know, the strictures of washing hands, strictures of maintaining distance, for example, uh, in the crowded slums, for instance, uh, it, it really doesn't uh, fall viable when we when we need to ensure all of that. So it it kind of doubly impacts upon uh, women vis-a-vis -vis their own personal hygiene, menstrual hygiene, for example, in in crowded places, it becomes very, very difficult to be able, uh, lack of water also for that matter. So uh, something which could be very, very specific to the well-being of women, for example, pre and postnatal care for, uh, for, for women, access to sexual and reproductive health, including adolescent reproductive and sexual health, 
life saving support that uh, some of these uh, survivors of violence could be requiring so uh, this perhaps uh, makes uh, makes us think about where are therefore the gaps which uh, need to be plugged when it comes to uh, taking note of what the what the pandemic has done to 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 the to the women now um, if uh, if uh, <clears throat> if we take note of uh, scenarios such as this particularly if half the half of the women half of the poor are women and girls and the the access to resources is so dismal uh, abiding by the guidelines in order to ensure what has been said hygiene personal cleanliness and hygiene uh, perhaps uh, remains a big question mark uh, therefore, if we kind of relate it to what was uh, what was happening closer home, uh, we we do take note of the fact, especially if we could, if I could draw from what was happening in in the in the camps of uh, the uh, urban centers where uh, the migrants who wanted to return to their native places after the lockdown was announced were put. Uh, and what was happening to the access to water, what was happening to uh, the availability of the toilets, and even the food packets which were, uh, which were uh, being distributed for them. We, we have a number of stories, not only from what was reported in the media, but one of the uh, rapid studies which uh, we've engaged in also throws up some very live examples which suggest that uh, uh, distribution of these resources which were for these people who were put in these uh, camps to ensure that uh, they remain safe before they can uh, before they can return uh, to their respective places perhaps the judgment of putting them in those camps was a bit of an array because uh, the close proximity uh, with poor availability of water and toilet facilities uh, did not allow the kind of uh, hygiene and the disease distancing which was required in order to uh, kind of uh, put on board uh, the, the check which was needed. And therefore, uh, a lot of uh, suggestions come in from this very idea that when they, these migrants, when they actually reached home, probably had already contracted the illness. And by the time when, when, when they reached home, the infection was full, uh, full blown and was more evident in the form of uh, infections that were seen in the in the places of uh, where the migrant workers reach. So if we if we look at uh, some of the uh, figures which which come up uh, both from international agencies as well as uh, national agencies, uh, what was also happening uh, in terms of like I said, besides COVID, other morbidities and other events were happening. Something which was very appalling for me to note as I was doing the study, that uh, the uh, maternal, maternal and Child Health Center of All India Institute of Medical Sciences was reopened only in the first week of June after the first un unlocking had set in. So the first question which perhaps comes to mind is, what was happening to those women who required 
ANC care who were delivering babies during that during during that period. And it's interesting to note also that the home deliveries during that period, particularly March, April, May, has kind of risen as compared to earlier months of the year and even perhaps even the previous uh, year for that matter. So something of this sort, something of this nature really becomes important for us to take note of what will happen to these 20 million births, which, which probably have occurred in these times, wherein uh, whether the ANC was provided, uh, if the ANC was not provided, what will happen to these children who will be born minus some of these requisite immunization that they, they, they re they're reading. Um, the other important point which perhaps becomes also necessary to deal with is uh, the, the, the kind of work these frontline healthcare workers engage with. Uh, most of the time in rural areas, uh, more than 3 million of them, uh, are uh, the only kind of support which is available for all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of ailments over there. So what... What is important is to then consider certain kind of uh, systems of uh, infrastructure, certain systems wherein the support can be built in over there. These are the these are the healthcare workers who have been actually moving around to uh, identify cases, to to track the contract contacts of these identified cases, and thereby exposing themselves to far, far more risk than perhaps uh, in case if they did not have to move uh, away from those uh, kind of uh, scenarios from those places. Uh, besides health, the other important, the important uh, aspect which uh, pandemic seemingly has done, um, I am taking note of the time. I think I've already overshot my time. I'll just try to perhaps finish in another 10 minutes or so. So uh, the the other pointer is in terms of um, with the with the lockdown having uh, descended, uh, all economic activities having uh, kind of closed. Uh, there 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 are evidences that more of them uh, perhaps would not be able to return to their uh, to their um, work as as perhaps they could have uh, managed to do it. Uh, something which is uh, very important to take uh, note of, which I said earlier also, the, the, in, uh, the share of men and women in the informal uh, sector employment. Globally, while there are lesser women in less developed and middle-income countries, there are more women in the informal sector. Now, with that, perhaps what becomes very important is the vulnerability therefore increases far more. Now, uh, as, uh, uh, as women who are uh, earning and uh, lesser than men, there are likelihoods of therefore saving less also. With, with that, the insecure uh, employ, insecurity of employment perhaps also puts them into, into uh, the kind of uh, inaccessibility towards any kind of social protection. And I have already stated that in the, the scenarios with be health insurance, for example. So with all this uh, uh, kind of uh, propensities which are not non-existence for them, to be able to absorb the shock, suddenly you have no work and therefore no 
uh, no no money to deal with is much much uh, less than uh, what it can be for women and uh, across the globe uh, the human women data which has been collated across countries suggests that women are losing uh, their livelihood faster than men and uh, also they have very uh, they are the ones who have fewer alternatives uh, to generate in uh, uh, any other form of work for themselves and again it's also because of the divides that we see in terms of the different kinds of propensities that that are existing for them uh, uh, and therefore, I think uh, it becomes very important for us to take note of that uh, if uh, this kind of scenario prolongs for, uh, for a long period of time, uh, the multiplicity uh, of the vulnerabilities for women and girls will probably be such that they'll spread and be visible in other, other aspects also. For girls, education will be another important factor that will be impacted and and i'll come there in a short while in 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 case uh, of uh, protection or extending some kind of protection to uh, to the workers in general uh, what what was uh, done by the ministry of labor was uh, issuance of a government order which uh, which ensured that those who were engaging in small and medium enterprises their wages uh, will be protected however uh, we really uh, did not have any way to monitor how was this uh, how was this protection being actually executed uh, because uh, on the one hand uh, while uh, the, there was a need to ensure that the wages of the laborers particularly was put in place. There was uh, no viable suggestion for those who were actually were the employers in the sense that if the machines, for example, if the factories were closed, how would they be able to uh, generate the kind of uh, income and be able to provide the wages. So that was a question which comes through even when we explored these questions on the field vis-a-vis uh, -vis our work. So uh, this was something which becomes very important for us to uh, take note of vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, what's happening in the international level. Uh, and in the same realm, therefore, I think it's also important to note that uh, 22% women and 19% men, uh, those who are employed as per the UN figures that we have, are, uh, are earning, uh, whatever they are earning, they continue to remain the below the international uh, poverty line. And when we, when we equate that with our scenario, we see that the proportions are much higher, 25, <clears throat> there are, uh, there are, <clears throat> nearly 25% women who work for cash and 23% uh, who work of these women who work in urban and uh, rural areas, 25% are in rural areas. So the, the vulnerabilities seemingly have a lot to do with what is happening uh, in terms of not only uh, how state stipulates a certain kind of uh, protection certain kind of scheme that could be put in place, 
but also the way that scheme could be translated. So uh, that that perhaps become very important, uh, and we can actually uh, contrast it with with the <clears throat> international figures also, for that matter. Uh, quickly moving ahead to yet another yet another scenario is uh, uh, when we talk in terms of uh, uh, how women. Uh, are rendering the kind of services without any any you know payment without any remuneration to them and it's it's really notable that much of the work that women and girls engage in remains invisible and is unpaid and that is actually the basis of uh, you know how uh, the world's economies are kind of maintaining uh, the the regular daily routines that they, they that they have you know, before the crisis started, uh, you know, women were apparently doing three times uh, more of the unpaid work as a vis-a-vis, -vis particularly the domestic work, as compared to men. Uh, but what happened vis-a-vis -vis the the lockdown, vis-a-vis -vis the social distancing, uh, the demand to have uh, more out of what women could be doing otherwise, especially with the closure of the school, uh, ensuring that the children who were in the family, particularly the school-going children, will have to uh, be catered to in terms of ensuring that they sit through the classes. Uh, if there were uh, elderly family members who needed some care, it was the women who were supposed to. That, that also uh, gets extended to this women whose, whose work freely is freely available there is a possibility that prior to the pandemic there was a paid uh, nurse for example for an elderly member of the household which was coming so some of these <clears throat> things add to, added to the burden of the women who were otherwise doing one third of the job which they were doing now uh, interestingly it was all, it's also noted that uh, almost 1.5 billion students have remained at home uh, since March uh, due to the pandemic. And this is something uh, which also becomes very important in our context, uh, particularly when we bring on board the context of online uh, online classes. Uh, in one of the uh, one of the <clears throat> one of the ideas which is also put forth is uh, that the schools and colleges have reached their student, and therefore education perhaps has become uh, easier for them. But uh, whatever we might want to do vis-a-vis -vis, uh, our uh, digital uh, context of learning, uh, replacing a face-to-face -face classroom perhaps is really, really difficult. We, we, we cannot really get there uh, in any kind of uh, uh, kind of any that, that replacement perhaps is not possible and therefore uh, when we when we put women in context of all this additional work that she needs she's now desired to kind of put across in terms of uh, her regular uh, uh, regimes of work that she had uh, minus the for, for for instance minus the domestic help that could have been there prior to the pandemic now uh, with the with the pandemic having arrived the domestic help being gone much of the work falls on her and the continuance and acceptance of unpaid work 
as a norm is uh, is is globally recognized to be a very very strong driver of inequality and therefore leads to other kind of inequalities which can be pertaining to wages which could be pertaining to incomes even physical and mental stresses that can be uh, taken note of and therefore i think uh, what was put across as a, you know a family time you know uh, it, it it was assumed that um uh, lockdown is going to give us time to be with the with the family uh, and therefore a different kind of uh, you know interaction will be generated between family members uh, perhaps too much of proximity has uh, also been reported to have generated different kinds of stresses ranging from uh, violence induced to just 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 induced because of the proximity closure of school especially with school level children uh, is not only induced uh, the kind of stress that because mother to my mind is the one who is largely associated with the responsibility to ensure that the child is sitting in front of the screen doing the classes now till about yesterday as mothers we were all telling the children to stipulate uh, the time in front of the screen to ration the time in front of the screen and today as mothers uh, we are all making them sit in front of the screen and i'm sure the next pandemic is going to be related to the eyes the amount of screen time that we are all engaging in vis-a-vis uh, vis all kinds of work that we are doing so proximity uh, on one hand uh, which was perhaps seen in a different uh, context uh, to bring people together in the fam familial setup probably has also become a cause for you know uh, stress it has also uh, you know led to uh, the kind of uh, already uh, you know the the gender divide that we already have in the kind of household course uh, we may have uh, men actually being able to enjoy the indoor activities uh, much more than perhaps women and girls who will be largely who have reported also to be engaging largely in terms of uh, doing their kitchen jobs and other household chores so uh, this perhaps uh, is a kind of uh, stimulant to to raise conflicts uh, similarly if we if we take note of women who have been uh, you know who who've been working uh, essential services like i said uh, when women continue to work uh, as uh, as part of that uh, services which are essential uh, the timings particularly in case of healthcare workers but even other other workers for example if i take uh, note of uh, women who were working in uh, the units which were selling essential items in the malls uh, now if the corridors are blank and the shops which are selling non essential items are closed the 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 proximity uh, to uh, to these uh, blank stretches uh, or or uh, not being uh, you know being alone for that matter uh, while walking through these empty passages could be also increasing that kind of vulnerability for for women and therefore uh, even as uh, working individuals uh, one might be uh, stacked vis-a-vis the kind of uh, uh, problem that could arise uh, as 
as worker because of the pandemic. Uh, if you look at the situation of uh, young people, uh, something which is very important to perhaps take note of is uh, a lot of uh, uh, schools have kind of uh, schools and colleges and universities have remained closed and therefore students have remained out of out of uh, you know schools also um something to the tune of almost 90 percent now uh, while students have been away what is also important to take note of is uh, some of the scenarios which have got evolved now uh, online learning could be feasible and possible for some kind of uh, students, some kind of uh, socioeconomic strata from which the students could be coming, some kind of you know uh, places which are fairly tech savvy, uh, connectivities are strong, etc. But it may not be the same when it comes to some other vulnerable places and vulnerable uh, 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 situations. So it becomes very difficult to ensure that kind of parity when a learning process can happen that way. So uh, a lot of possibility is that when it comes to girl students, uh, there is a possibility that uh, those who are already in, uh, let's say, poverty in rural areas with other kind of disabilities, the likelihood of their discontinuing, not being able to reconnect with their uh, learning processes is, uh, is, uh, is the possibility that we are seeing at the moment. Uh, and this is also evident from the earlier pandemics that uh, a good number of, uh, a large share of adolescent girls were not able to return to their, um, to their education. One of the references that I would probably want to share here is while speaking to uh, the students and uh, other members of uh, this, you know, this university college in one of the eastern parts of Uttar Pradesh. The first thing I was told that uh, the online teaching has been very detrimental for girls because girls do not have a access to phones because parents believe that uh, this will uh, this will this is detrimental for them they, it's not good quote unquote for girls to use phone and therefore they don't do not have phones and laptops of course are yet another uh, another thing to think about so in the absence of access to phones online teaching for these girls has become a huge peril and they're actually not able to uh, take on anything in the name of uh, classes. It's only, uh, it's only, therefore, uh, a lot of them are remaining without being able to catch on what is, what is, what is kind of happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the classes. Um, the other, <clears throat> the other aspect is, uh, which we perhaps might want to think about is, uh, since a lot of youth comprise the workforce, and the way uh, work scenario has been vis-a-vis vis the closure of uh, employing units, um, unemployment is, uh, is kind of one very important aspect which has, which has hit the young people. And we can take note of uh, the levels at which the unemployment has 
hit the young people. Uh, very quickly, uh, something which perhaps is important to take note of also is uh, the kind of uh, uh, reflection that we get across globe in terms of places which have already been hit by uh, the conflict scenarios uh, or in, in an in an ordinary kind of scenarios, in an ordinary kind of uh, situation, we see that uh, the maternal deaths in any case are fairly alarming. Even we, without any conflict, at, at least at national level, have uh, not a very good scenario when it comes to maternal mortality. Uh, what has happened vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic is that because the support systems have stretched themselves towards the pandemic, what was existing in the name of care has has kind of uh, shrunken and therefore the 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 burden on uh, receiving giving care and also uh, therefore uh, vulnerabilities towards maternal mortality has increased in the regions which have been which are conflict prone now if we if we uh, relate that with the with the camps in which people were kept before they returned to their native places um, cramped conditions uh, were affecting uh, you know physical distancing in in all possible ways uh, violence like i said while accessing services to toilet facilities which were largely uh, public toilets was another uh, reflection and was cited also as we spoke to some of them in terms of uh, experience of uh, harassment uh, that they had that we, especially young women and girls had experienced so uh, this this is something which needs to be taken note of while strategizing how women can actually be taken on board when it comes to uh, dealing with uh, the covid scenario in conditions which are uh, conflict-ridden. Uh, uh, just to take note of the fact that uh, while uh, when we look at uh, their participation in uh, you know any kind of decision making, it just uh, just about a little over a quarter of women who seemingly have been part of any decision making globally. So, <clears throat> so this is something which uh, if I if I just kind of uh, extend it in terms of what was happening in our scenario, one of the cases uh, which is reflected uh, in terms of uh, a daughter who was trying to escape the spousal violence and had, and had come to her mother's house, that's when the pandemic occurred and the lockdown was announced and she couldn't return. She didn't want to perhaps return to the marital family. But in the lockdown, with the pan, uh, in the lockdown, what also happened is that the brother who was the breadwinner of the family, he lost a job. And therefore the crisis, the economic crisis of an additional face, fee, uh, mouth to feed, uh, kind of created uh, situations such as that she was she reported to have got beaten up even by the brother so these were the kind of scenarios these are the kind of situations which have been reported in terms of what was happening to women uh, and like i said diversions were causing a lot of gaps uh, particularly in the services which were needed 
very essentially the health services and the and the police uh, force that was in the, in the engaging with it. Uh, some of these states, uh, like Karnataka, for example, uh, set up uh, some centers labeled as Santuna centers to address the issues of uh, domestic violence, for example. Uh, Delhi also had uh, kind of uh, certain functional helplines which were put in place. Uh, it was also uh, noted in Delhi, particularly Delhi and another uh, city, Chennai and uh, Mumbai also, that uh, uh, the police force was specifically as part of their regular regime, were collecting data on students, particularly women students who were residing in uh, private hostels and uh, children who were staying in care centers to ensure uh, that uh, that they were given the kind of uh, uh, support that they were required. But something which comes out very clearly uh, in terms of new entrance to these uh, houses, particularly the shelter rooms, that uh, there are instances which were reported uh, even when we were doing the field work, that um, the new entrant was kind of uh, not taken in because of the uh, because of the fear of con uh, COVID being COVID positive, so, so, and there are at least two instances that that kind of were re reported for us come in come in so, uh, become very important to think about migrants. I'm sure we've heard a lot uh, and we've read a lot about them, but uh, in terms of women migrants, two things perhaps are important for us to take note of. One as a worker herself, uh, wherein having largely being in the informal sector, uh, the experience of uh, poorer propensities to be able to take an alternative job uh, puts her in a vulnerable position. Second, as a dependent on a migrant worker, further uh, kind of aggravates her condition vis-a-vis -vis the vulnerabilities. You know, especially when you are uh, at, at the at the lower paid, low economic uh, ladder, your payments are much lower. Uh, that becomes something which which really needs to be uh, taken note of. Now, uh, most of because it's in, in most of them being in the informal sector, low paid jobs, a lot of them as a domestic uh, domestic kind of uh, support uh, workers, cleaners, laundry workers, etc. And all of much good num good share of them is also in the hospital scenarios, remaining excluded from any kind of social protection. So much of this again exaggerates their vulnerability in terms of uh, being able to uh, take on an alternative. So this also further aggravates their economic uh, conditions. Since the work is lost, savings are low, uh, they're, they're in, in case of whatever remittances they could have been sharing, uh, sending home, they also get uh, kind of uh, stalled which also then affects people who could have been surviving on those in their places of origin. So as migrant workers, and let's also remember that as migrant workers, uh, we might want to also take note of the larger frame of who migrants are. Most of the time we restrict ourselves in terms of thinking of the migrants in the informal sector work. In fact, you and I also will be migrants in some stretch of explanation for that matter. 
So uh, uh, this was actually, uh, I found this very interesting because uh, based on this uh, question, which was asked in Lok Sabha on 14th of September, uh, this actually shows us uh, the migrants who the state who could manage to reach uh, their uh, their respective places. So it's very interesting to note uh, the darker darker shaded dark shades of the states are the ones wherein uh, who are the supplying uh, who are the ones wherein the migrants return. So the we can see these are the states which are less developed, the most developed states, wherein the migrants have returned from. So. Something which perhaps becomes also important for us to note is uh, how uh, these, uh, the, the larger context in which we oppose our uh, migrant workers vis-a-vis -vis the support of uh, personal protective uh, equipments, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the kind of uh, food subsidy or the healthcare that could have been provided. One illustration that I would probably want to uh, take uh, on board is from the tea garden workers, uh, particularly in Assam, wherein even after the lockdown was announced, it took a while before the tea uh, garden uh, tea leaf plucking could be put on hold because that was the time when the first flush of tea leaves were to be plucked. So it took a couple of uh, perhaps weeks more than otherwise. Uh, so the exposure to to the to the uh, to to the probable infection continued for them as they as they worked without uh, without any PPE gears and in any case and a lot of women I'm bringing this also because most of the tea leaf plucking is done by women and their vulnerabilities continue to be there without any PPE gears without any uh, you know system in which they could uh, locate themselves for doing the job which they were doing. So uh, I think uh, we've, we've uh, by and large spoken about these, but just to reiterate perhaps what's important is to get the, <clears throat> get the data which we need to uh, disaggregate in terms of gender so that a viable policy can be actually put in place. Uh, women who have been in uh, shelter homes uh, need to be provided the kind of uh, hygienic uh, systems, be it water supply, be it uh, uh, sub uh, substance of menstrual hygiene, masks, disinfectants, etc., etc., needs to be uh, made available vis-a-vis their uh, their their use. Uh, Second thing, uh, which is, uh, like I said, and I perhaps have reiterated earlier also, uh, stay at home has really not been very viable for women from, for, for the simple reason that uh, the perpetrators uh, could be using the very idea of staying at home to their benefit, which is further detrimental for women. Uh, particularly when uh, movements are restricted and you really cannot move out of the house to save yourself in conditions of such exposure. So uh, alternative systems beyond, uh, you know, some kind of uh, counseling or legal aid or, or, uh, or uh, telephone services, they perhaps need to be scaled up further in order to ensure that accessibility wherein women can actually um, be able to uh, access the kind of uh, support system. We, we, we 
we have more of uh, you know uh, negative stories when it comes to uh, ensuring reporting of these cases by the police so uh, something of the kind wherein uh, women will feel comfortable enough to be able to go and register uh, whichever way possible with particularly now perhaps when the unlocking uh, perhaps has come to its fairly uh, a long way so uh, so therefore uh, some of these instances probably become uh, very important for us to take note of vis-a-vis uh, how do we ensure women who may have lost their work and would want to get on board vis-a-vis uh, vis their um, work so one of the aspects could be you know when uh, when the uh, when food any kind of subsidy for example or food is being uh, given for example uh, perhaps has to be more in terms of the individuals within the household rather than on the basis of the household that will at least uh, reflect on uh, or minimize the kind of dependence uh, women could be having on men uh, that's one important thing which perhaps becomes very important. Some of the states have put in place some kind of monetary support also. Food Corporation of India <clears throat> has also uh, kind of uh, pledged the kind of uh, something to the tune of, uh, you know, helping 81 crore people to get the food. But uh, the, 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 translation of these schemes perhaps needs to be monitored and also uh, you know seen uh, how it gets through because we still have evidences of uh, uh, people who have collected spilled milk and kind of uh, almost begged food on the highways to be able to feed themselves so that's something uh, which is needed to kind of strategically address how uh, how this aspect of uh, pandemic will be taken care Media has its own, uh, you know, ways in which it has uh, taken on board the questions of uh, COVID nineteen and perhaps mitigating it also. One of the uh, one of the most uh, perhaps uh, that I have noticed, I may have missed others also, is uh, the campaigns which the NDTV has joined hands with Detol to launch. Uh, so uh, with all this. Uh, now the two minutes, Arjun, I'm really sorry for taking this long, but I just thought... No, please go on, yes. <laughs> you know, when we, uh, when we come close to the time point wherein uh, we've uh, kind of unlocked as of now, right? I mean, I, re I recall the 31st October when, uh, when the, the, the announcement that the unlocking has kind of we have to take care of ourselves now if we <clears throat> today when we take note of what was the scenario in april just about a month uh, or a few weeks rather 19th of april would be just about a few weeks you know that was the time then then when we were still just about half of the uh, you know districts were uh, reporting uh, to have had uh, confirmed cases you know we were still uh, we were still very comfortable, uh, but as we moved ahead uh, gradually, and if I can uh, recall the data that I have used, uh, sometime in mid-May is that we see a sudden spurt happening in in, in the in the in the kind of way uh, infections 
increase in the country. So, so much so that when we see the data today, uh, we kind of uh, get the impression that while we have reached a figure, something to the tune of uh, eight, uh, 8 million plus, right? Uh, as compared to what we started with, you know, 30th of January, we had just about one case and a spread of about eight, nine months, we are here. Now, uh, when we compare the world figures with vis-a-vis with, with India, Right from the beginning, be it uh, the infectivity, be it case fatality, be it recovery, and uh, be it simple, you know, numerical values of uh, deaths that have been caused by the pandemic, uh, we have fared much better than most other countries. We know this fairly well. I mean, uh, uh, the only problem to my mind has been that the kind of fear which has been created for this number, for this uh, infectivity has been something which we haven't managed to deal with very well. And I say this because, you know, even now when we disaggregate the figures across the states, you know, Maharashtra is seemingly, you know, uh, the worst of state when it comes to uh, the the number of cases, but but what is happening to Kerala? Kerala is the one which is adding most number. Last twenty four hours, this is the data that I have for yesterday. The last twenty four hours, Kerala seems to have added seven thousand more uh, more cases. Similarly, if we look at the active cases, Karnataka seems to be having uh, you know most number of active cases and. Uh, again, has added more number of active cases also. So the point I'm making here is when you when we look at uh, you know these are the first seven I think seven or eight states uh, which seemingly have had uh, worst of the conditions. Uh, the point I'm making is despite the numbers being large, if we see it proportionate to what was happening in uh, what has happened in other countries and across the world we seemingly have uh, been fairly all right. I mean, the panic that has got created was not what was needed to have gotten there. What was needed to have gotten there was, uh, how do we address this? And like I said, given the problems that we have in terms of our health uh, system per se, the quantum uh, uh, share of the GDP that we have at the health center, what was perhaps more needed, that the critical care was addressed far more, uh, far more, you know, with more vigorous uh, responses as compared to the uh, non-critical care, especially the ones which were milder uh, and so on. And not that they did not need care, but the point is that they could have been handled even otherwise. So that that's something which I would probably had uh, wanted to say. And therefore, what was also, and I repeat again, that the empirical information which needs to be disaggregated by gender in order to be able to say what is it that is required for women becomes very, very important. This is something which I'm drawing from <clears throat> a, a, a source which is not, uh, you know, this is a paper which has, uh, which has uh, been published based on the empirical data which has been collected by, <clears throat> by the researcher in uh, IEG. 
So this is the information which we get in terms of uh, how men and women uh, are when it comes to both the confirmed cases vis-a-vis -vis the deaths that have occurred uh, to uh, men and women in the country. Now, in terms of uh, when we look at these figures, like I said, we need to take note of uh, what is happening in terms of prioritizing women's health at one level. And also, if we look at uh, the vulnerabilities of mortality, even among women vis-a-vis -vis their own uh, you know, conditions of nutritional uh, status, et cetera, et cetera. So when we look at women in our scenarios, we see that more than 50% of them in, in, the, in the reproductive ages are anemic as compared to men, the one-fifth less, little more than one-fifth of them are anemic. So uh, and uh, anemic conditions, are very, very strongly related to the immunities which are important for addressing or combating or being able to take care of oneself as we COVID-19. So uh, I think this therefore becomes very important to go beyond the, uh, the stark numerical values. We also would want to see that uh, despite this difference, uh, the study also points out the fact that while because of these uh, uh, problems with the or the reflections of the nutritional levels and the anemic conditions, uh, there is uh, while Indian women, when they contract COVID-19, they are at a higher risk of dying as compared to uh, as compared to men. This, of course, is the data which is restricting itself to just about mid uh, mid May. Uh, so the point, therefore, is that uh, going beyond stark numbers in terms of what is behind those stark num numbers also becomes very important. Uh, who are these women who are dying? Are these uh, women who are uh, from what social strata? Which kind of hair care provisioning are they doing? Uh, are they at the subordinate levels or are they at the higher realms of the uh, care provide provisioning? Uh, because uh, like I said, when it comes to women health workers, those who are at the subordinate levels are far more in number. They are the ones who are going to trace the contacts of COVID-19. They are the ones who are exposing themselves into the community and therefore, uh, it's very important to disaggregate further, not only by gender, but also by who are these women who are getting affected in which way. And a lot of them, uh, one of the reflections is that, and uh, when I'm sure those, uh, when we were uh, reading and hearing about Dharavi and how Dharavi took care of uh, its people who were affected by COVID, a good number of healthcare providers were the ones who were living among them. So, uh, and again, by, by way of their economic propensities, a lot of them have to kind of choose to live in those conditions. And we know what are the propensities of living in the slums vis-a-vis -vis housing, vis-a-vis -vis water availability, vis-a-vis -vis other requirements, which perhaps are essential vis-a-vis -vis the guideline when it comes to addressing, uh, addressing COVID-19. So I think uh, over and above these stark numerical figures, the characteristics of the people who are engaging in providing care, who are engaging in, who are getting affected also becomes very important for us to be able to provide the kind of 
policies to provide the kind of uh, you know to be able to address what uh, COVID-19 has done to women will be very very important. I think I'm going to stop here. The rest of it is the references that I think I've taken uh, some of the references largely from some of my work and some of my other work. So I'm going to stop here with apologies yeah. of taking almost double the time I thought I will take. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, no, in fact, uh, thanks a lot, uh, you know, Professor Sangamitra Acharyaji. Uh, uh, in fact, I have to say um, that maybe there's not any area that you have left in your uh, presentation. You have covered the entire range, the entire gamut of issues that impact women. And I think you've done it so beautifully. In fact, and that's the reason why, you know, I never felt like also uh, telling you the time is up or whatever, because we <laughs> wanted you to continue. And thankfully you continue, you know, uh, despite your cough and all, despite the disturbances and all. Uh, I think the, the important aspect which you bring out, uh, you know, I think I'm not going to summarize the entire thing because it'll be another talk. So uh, I think what you brought out very clearly was that it's the most vulnerable who are differentially impacted compared to other people, you know? And in that it will be women, and the women will be Dalits, and be further homeless, disabled. I think you keep on adding to it, and the vulnerabilities keep multiplying, you know, in that proportion. So that was, I think, very important thing. And then you mentioned about the whole society approach, that we have to address it holistically, yeah. you know, not, uh, you know, in silos. I think that's where the problem has been, that the government addresses in silos, you know. Yeah. Then I think um, at this point which you brought out was very, very important, which you also noticed, and I maybe I'll share one or two points here, is that, like, you know, staying at home, you are staying with the devil. You are staying with the perpetrator. And uh, I must share here, uh, you know, Professor Sangamitra, that, you know, uh, in fact, since we were part of the uh, Delhi government's uh, panel, for advisory panel for COVID relief, so we were into rationing distributions and shelters and food and everything. And all of a sudden, midway, you know, I see, I started getting calls from young girls mm -hmm. uh, from Kanpur and all, saying that the, their father is bashing them up. Wow. You know, and then there were a series of things. And then for that reason, I started a WhatsApp group called No Wallace Against Women. And then I got calls from my own friends who were teaching the university and other places that this spousal violence. And saying that, sir, how can I tell you, sir, I mean, I'm facing it. So this was something which actually was totally hidden, you know. And government kept quiet about it. NCW first said, oh, it's 100% rise. Then they started to say, no, 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 actually we meant something else. You know, remember, they were checking it out, you know. Yes. Because I think this government didn't want to address it. You know, the problem was that. Because, um, and somewhere I think in a presentation, I personally feel, and which I have also been saying it upfrontly, you know, that... Uh, you know, uh, for many of us, I think the union government has failed miserably handling this issue. And when you say that disaster and, um, you know, the, this pandemic and all actually uh, increases the gap in society between people. You know, it, it showed the worst face of India. Yes. That how things actually are problematical at the bottommost level as such, you know, where where the Dalit and the women and the children and girls and everybody were badly for the beds. And I think you came up with figures and all, which I think, you know, I'm not going to dispute that at all. I think it's fantastic. And nobody's going to dispute that at all. You know, um, and I think, um, uh, yes. Um, and I think the point that brought up, I think which, 
uh, I think many would have not noticed it that even the provisioning of gloves and PPEs and all were actually universal sizes, which was universal means man, which is what a patriarchal set of culture is all about, you know, in, in the country and the world also. And it obviously would not fit the women and it makes uh, it and it further encumbers them, you know. So I think these are small, small nuances which you provide, like how 70% care providers are women, but leaders among them are 30%. So this discrimination that happens in society, I think, you know, is shown at all levels. And uh, then also you spoke about prioritizing women's health care and then violence, I think, you know, using public toilets. And I think all that is very important. Uh, and somewhere I personally also feel, you know, um, that uh, some of the strong arms of the state, the police and all, they actually complicated the problems, you know. They made things worse for women and for migrants and for the people who really they should have catered to, you know by showing them away, by pushing them away. So many people couldn't get food because they were, you know, they were moved away from the places. They were told to go inside the homes and they had no homes. So when they go, they go on the streets because we were working with the homeless people. We realized the problems that they were facing as such, you know. So um, then of course, I think, you know, you bring up this issue of informal sector workers and all, which is very important. Uh, I, I think I don't want to get into that. Um, yes, I think you spoke about the family time and the issue really is uh, when the family is missing, you know, and when the family means uh, further oppression and discrimination and, uh, you know, a uh, lot of work for women, what family are you talking about? So even in the well-off family and all, even the middle-class family, I think the workload really increased 3x, 4x kind of thing, you know, four times, you know, five times kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, one second, yeah. And and I think this thing, always, uh, you know, uh, talk about because, uh, you know, um, my wife works with this uh, school in Anupshar, which is Padada Padada Usual Society. And they were the ones who, through their funds, because they realized that girl, they couldn't open the school, they provided taps to the girls. So first taps to 12th class students, then taps to uh, 11th class students, then taps to, uh, you know, 10th class students, because they had going to board. What they realized was till 12th and all the girls were bold enough, they could handle it. The moment the tap reached to 10th class students, the brothers and all started fighting with them. <laughs> and they took the tabs from them, you know, and then they had to actually do a lot of work in terms of handling the domination of the father and the uh, male child, you know. So I think this is some aspect, you know, which I think we need to keep in mind also, like online education compared to men and uh, boys and girls, I think girls fare the worst, you know, and they have to deal with a lot of issues, which many of them, many of the people don't even realize as such, you know. Well, um, uh, I would just say that, you know, it was um, fantastic listening to you. And uh, since Govindji is there, and you know, I think you've added so many perspectives into where you brought in. I think you're not left one aspect. You know, you've spoken about why, how uh, in Dharavi, since um, uh, you know, uh, healthcare workers were there, so they were able to able to handle this problem much better than in many other areas. So I think you have addressed a lot of issues, and um, you know, I would now uh, hand it over to Govindji for her comments, and then of course to other uh, friends from the you know who are listening to us. And there are some question and answers also sure. in the section. I think we'll also repeat the questions, you know. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, uh, Sangamitra, ma'am, if you can stop the share, then. Okay, I will do that. Yeah. Ma'am, if you can share the PPT, we will upload it on the website. Sure, I will do that. Because it has so many, very, very comprehensive, very okay. many information there. Yes. Yeah. Govind, yeah. yeah. Our request to upload the PPT speaks for the lecture. It was really splendid. Mm, yes. It was. It was very, very comprehensive with the data. 
However, there are few questions that are coming to my mind. I mean, it's not necessary. One question is the nature of patriarchy in India and globally. And I think Dr. Singh also has spoken about that. That why in the home, which is a, a considered a nurturing home, why there is more violence? We say if the man is there, the woman is protected. Singleness, single woman is vulnerable. But when the man is there, the woman becomes so vulnerable within hope, outside yes. vulnerable. I mean, this really raises the dichotomy. What is this nurturing? What is the nature of the family? And not only that, I kept me thinking that this brother who started beating her because there was an additional kind of thing. Yes. And we talk of law. Law provides the equal share in property and equal share in residence and women's right to live in the house if there is a violence against women, irrespective of whether the husband owns or not, even if the in-laws own. This is the law in not very old. It's in 2005. After a great deal of a struggle, it was amended. So the law has become so ineffective. Or we don't care for the kind of state doesn't care to implement it. So additional law, I think, uh, is I'm not saying that there should be no law. There should be no law, but I don't have any hope, Sangmitraji. Huh? If the laws are passed, then something would done or would be done, kind of thing. And not only this, uh, this government. I'm talking of the nature of the state as such, and nature yes. of the family that violence has existed there earlier. But now when the proximity increased, when the so-called head of the household came, he really became, he had the crown on him and he began to rule uh, with Danda to everyone and the left and right kind of thing. So this is the call, the most kind of brutal or we call it toxic masculinity that we see in this kind of uh, uh, situation. So that is what the uh, one thing. Policy implementation, I've said that policy is not being implemented outright kind of thing. So even kind of this demand on the state for the policy implementation would be very uh, good. Where does women go? The resourceless condition. I mean, little bit of ca cash transfer, uh, police attendance, all these kind of incremental changes. Yes. I mean, they need, I am not saying that they don't need, but the fundamental thing is if the house and land or the, any kind of property, what is there, is in the woman's name. Even half of it, but half partitionable right, those women will not be beaten up. I did a case study of Meghalaya, which is the matrilineal estate. And you see the violence is really kind of, at least less than 10% in there. And that also increased as, as an influence from the all around the patriarchal system. So, Question land, other property, the share of the woman, so she's not economically and otherwise dependent on men. We raise our children that brother would take, so why iPad? They would take everything, whatever is kind of useful to them. And uh, we laugh at children, but the, there is also this kind of uh, uh, right that they learn to assert that this is the boy's right, this is the man's right, and we should have it. How come you will have it? Yes. First, first is my right and I should mm -hmm. have it. So this is the resourceless condition has to improve. And this is the time when the government is really asking this kind of high, kind of 100% increase of violence. Mm -hmm. And of course, the European countries also 30% increase in, in, um, in France. Mm -hmm. 
and China, which is a socialist country. I am a great admirer of China. And what has happened in China, one of my former students, and then she's working there, I'm a board member. Only today I learned that she has asked the organization that she would live separate because there is so much violence of her mother that she cannot tolerate. Mm -hmm. And mother says that, where do I go? This is the kind of thing, this is happening in the context of COVID. So it is not China or India, it is the question of resourceless condition of women. I mean, resources in the hands of women will, will make them stronger to fight for their rights. And that is the real cure that is needed. Eh? They will not be anemic then, they will be eating better. They will not be the last to eat. Yes. Eh? That the girl child would, uh, would be allowed to live. They will not really get rid of the children kind of, uh, that is the uh, this thing. And my last point is really about uh, we should also do some kind of a study. Maybe you are well placed in JNU that we can think of uh, really Meghalaya, something a state which is matrilineal and which is that. Whether where the even not everybody but the youngest daughter has the responsibility to support the family and she inherits land and she their lineage is by the kind of thing. What happened during? in Meghalaya during COVID time and compare it with any other state which is patriarchal. And I'm sure that there would be a lot of difference between the uh, thing. Simply why? Because the nature of the kind of system is so different. So systemic aspect we have to really unravel. It is not the uh, kind of uh, that uh, data only, but why it is happening? Why question is uh, needed? But I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. You were so comprehensive and I must congratulate you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, ma'am. Um, uh, Ashwin, do you want me to uh, uh, say something? No, uh, yeah, well, I think, um, uh, Professor Sangmitra, like what I want to do is like, there have been some questions also uh, on the, over this question answers. I'll read out these two questions, in fact, by your friend. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe you can answer both Govinji and this friend, you know. Uh, she says, just some reflections hearing you of the relationship of case of care to health women's uh, health. As presenter mentioned too, markers like violence affect health too. Domestic or close partner, intimate partner violence, violence at workplace, wondering also the impetus to have women to be part of workforce in the ways it is being imagined today is also a patriarchal imagination. So it appears that, again, whether a woman is being productive or contributing to the workforce or is not, also determined by patriarchal markers, constructs. Honoring women's ways isn't prioritized, but women are asked to stand next to men and take on certain roles as imagined by men. When I see a huge problem today, which I see as a huge problem today, because how do women break free from the structure when even the freedom or what it means to be free is defined largely by men? With power in patriarchal setups or by women that men choose to share the power with who in turn violate other women on behalf of the patriarchal setup. The added on further is I would add a basic universal income is something to be worked towards in terms of public policy and further add some more factors to increase basic universal income based on specific markers, vulnerabilities, such as single women, widowed women, senior citizens, women with disability, pregnant women, single pregnant women, or other markers women without housing, security, homeless women, et cetera. These indicators can further be looked as to determine, add to determine 
if the basic universal income is to be increased or by what amount. And this can be perhaps an impetus for women to also imagine different ways of engaging or creating their own norms of what it means to be employed, stay employed, or be part of a workforce, et cetera, or find freedom or to continue to be engaged in society in ways women choose or may make more room for other indicators that women may like or to look at the well-being, mental health, creative productivity, relationship with ecology and nature, et cetera, that may also be equally important to a woman working woman's thoughts. Well, this has been put by uh, Lynn Henry. Uh, you know, I think so these are questions which I think you can also take up, you know, in the response. Until uh, Arjun wants to ask something, or maybe Simon wants to ask something. Yeah. I must say that uh, these are some very pertinent points which we need to take note of the moment we start uh, deliberating on the question of women and gender. Uh, as uh, Professor Kilker has very rightly said, I think it's the issue of resourcelessness which puts women uh, in a vulnerable position and that perhaps links also to the idea which uh, this friend of yours has put across in terms of the question. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at uh, what is viable for women from the lens of men, yes. you know, whether uh, yeah. women is uh, equal to or not equal to, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That perhaps is the question which will be answered the moment we allow or ensure, not allow, ensure the kind of parity which is required in access to resources. If I can be uh, having similar kind of access to the, to the laptop or the iPad that you mentioned, I'm sure I will not have to fight with the brother or the male member in the family along the same lines. And therefore, despite the fact that I have equal access to uh, to the property of my parental home as compared to uh, my marital home, still there are the social impediments which make me kind of uh, do away or give my share to my brother, for example. So uh, when, I, when, uh, when I get together with Professor Kelker in uh, kind of arguing for... Uh, for overcoming resourcelessness. The point, therefore, I will think is important to take note of is how do the socio-cultural nuances impede mm -hmm. overcoming resourcelessness? And that's where perhaps uh, it's important to, uh, I, I want to get back to the whole question of how do we in the society rear up boys versus girls? You know, when we tell our daughters to dress up properly, come back home before it is sunset, etc., etc., we are already inculcating into the boys that, well, I can come back late at night. I need not be, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm bare-bodied or anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of telling the girls, I think it's more important to inculcate the respect which is needed for the girls and the women in the young minds of the boys. Absolutely. And those are the boys which will probably take note of this yeah. equality which is required to be able to ensure parity in uh, access to resources, be it education, be it care, 
be it nutrition. And like ma'am, you said very rightly, if I have access to money, for example, I'm sure I will know, uh, I will also be able to decide for myself, where do I spend that money for that matter? Uh, I mean, uh, NFHS data, if I can go back and relate from, you know, while, uh, you know, access to uh, money, in itself is something to the tune of less than 40%. Making a decision to be able to use it on my own health care is as poor as you know, uh, 30 to 40% still. So despite the fact that uh, even if we say 40% of women have access to money of certain kinds, uh, to be able to prioritize my health still remains a big question because before uh, me as a woman or a young girl, there are others in the family who would have, the, have, have that kind of priority. So I am completely on board when it comes to uh, enhancing uh, how the access to resources of various kinds can be uh, ensured for women in general. And again, we might want to disaggregate women on different axes of vulnerability further to get it to take it to the second level of so I, I, I think I'll stop there. For, uh, okay. uh, Professor Sangamitra, I just have another, I think, two points which I wanted to also raise was, you know, like, I think you brought in this dimension of very well about the private sector vis-a-vis -vis the public sector, you know? And uh, I must tell you that I was one who kept advising my friends not to go to private sector because last year I lost my sister-in-law uh, to Fortis Vasan Kunj. It was a clear case of murder that they did, you know? So... Uh, I have been, even my friends were, you know, with COVID positive, and I said, please go to LNJP, don't go to Max or don't go to Fortis, whatever. And I, I, I was getting calls from the family members, sir, please take them to private. I said, no, no private hospital, please. Public hospital is better in Delhi. So, you know, this also the psyche in the, you know, minds of people, the private is better, I think is also been created by the government itself. So government is the biggest culprit in this, you know, by 1% of GDP, what rubbish is this they're doing? Two is... This government, which created so many data earlier, so much of data earlier, all fake, today tells you got no data? Yes. Did there were no data in terms of how many people migrated, how many deaths took place? When people, when we all knew that over 340 people died, migrated, moving to places, you know, how many people were left without food and all, the country knew, and this government just washed the hands of saying they had no data. So the, the problem is, I think this this entire COVID could have been handled much better if a union government had stopped playing politics. If it had only governed properly, I think we would solve the problem. But the problem is that this union government was playing politics, like in Delhi, when Delhi wanted to go for the you know uh, homestay that they could do, you know recover in the home. The LG was opposing. No, 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 no. They have to be in the hospitals, and then. What rubbish! When people can take care of the home, why do you want to further, you know, um, uh, in fact, burden the government uh, institutions, you know? And then the plasma therapy which came in. So much of this came with plasma therapy. So it's like you know, you are making things worse for the uh, states which are not under your power. You know, so I think it's, it's like you know, much of the health could have been taken care of if a government had only governed had listened to people, you know, had listened to the voices of migrants, I think. So I would say if there's any problem with the vulnerabilities increase in the country, it's increased because of what the omission and the commission of the union government, you know, Absolutely. that's my take. Okay. 
In fact, you you brought it very well, uh, Dr. Singh. Uh, in fact, Meghalaya for a very long time, if I recall correctly, still has not reported uh, a case as of now. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, uh, to, to just put it across, uh, uh, like Professor Kelker says, that may be really a wonderful thing to explore this, uh, you know, comparative analysis across uh, another state and, and and Meghalaya for the way they have taken care of their populations and, uh, you know, what are, what is it that we can learn from. Uh, private sector hospital, uh, Dr. Singh, if I may just share uh, part of yes. the study which we've been doing. We right. kind of use the audit method to uh, check on how these private hospitals are admitting people. So yeah. uh, uh, two of the hospitals in Delhi, Fort is being one of them, we checked the website and the availability of the hospital. And then we made the phone call for the hospital. So when you're, first of all, it took us at least three to four kind of uh, calls before we could actually connect with them. And then they say that the beds are not available. So we said, this is what your website is saying. Mm -hmm. So the contention was by the time you've seen the website and you've made the call, beds have gotten over, which was, I mean, not a span of four, five, six days. We were doing it almost every day. The calls were being made. So, uh, but uh, but the person who was at the reception says uh, not to be quoted kind of in, in that mode that, uh, see, we write that because the government wants us to tell, give us, give some figures vis-a-vis -vis availability of the thing. But we do not want to get into doing that because... Uh, with all the due uh, share of uh, the 10% the of the bed count have to go for the poor people and so on. We do not want that to happen. I mean, that's the explanation given, meaning to say that even if the beds are available, we are not opening the beds for the COVID patients. So while the resources, like you said, are all going to the private sector, if we look at the uh, the Niti Aayog's uh, chapter on health, it very categorically says that uh, the resources from the public sector hospital uh, public sector hospitals can be used by the private sector units, but the returns need not necessarily be shared. So what oh. does that mean? I, I I mean I still would want to make a kind of uh, and but it says very explicitly that while the resource sharing can happen, but there's no clarity on how the, the, the returns will be shared vis-a-vis -vis the public sector. So mm -hmm. if this is the mindset with which yes. we are moving ahead, I'm sure uh, uh, the problems will continue okay. until and unless we take note of uh, some of these aspects and work through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, it reminds me of this point. Yes. Yeah, okay. Ah, yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much for giving such a, a very nice lecture and uh, covering so many points. I've written many things, uh, but uh, ma'am has really highlighted uh, the various diverse needs of diverse women, be it rural women, uh, be it a young woman. Uh, there is global uh, various sort of cohorts of women, and uh, uh, the needs really is very diverse, as Indusari is also mentioning. Uh, so we have the largest largest UBI program through the Jandhan account to women, but 500 rupees. And uh, we have been arguing that uh, half a liter milk comes for 20 rupees. By even that standard, you know, the 500 rupees is very less, abysmally low. So uh, uh, no wonder we are sending it to 20 crore women, Jandhan account. Uh, 
but uh, really in governance system also we have smart cities but from the angle of health ma'am has uh, given so many statistics and uh, ma'am's last slides also showed us uh, the sign of uh, a second wave especially in kerala in delhi uh, what's uh, happening in europe and uh, the concerns ma'am have uh, really raised can prepare us towards this second wave uh, uh, of this pandemic because prevention is better than cure so how to mitigate the losses uh, i think ma'am has really highlighted from this diverse background ma'am we have also done this telephonic survey on village makers rural uh, women we have uh, uh, interviewed more than 5000 women across india and that was a time use survey uh, from there also many things have come up and uh, each hours we have recorded with many more than 100 students uh, so many things are coming there also and uh, in this new digital age many challenges ma'am is really highlighting that even the whole pedagogy and everything is getting affected uh, ma'am what in your view uh, what do you think that what should be the way ahead especially keeping in the view the second wave and uh, how to mitigate uh, the risk uh, especially when we know the areas of our threat, threat uh, be it uh, anemia or be it uh, uh, the hospitalization nurses anganwadi and many things ma'am you have uh, touched upon so what we can quickly learn and in move in that uh, direction for government but also for communities and people uh, at large yes ma'am in this side do you want to add anything uh, no i just i just to, to that i just want to uh, you know i think uh, this friend has further written that thank you professor sangmitra it reminds me of a response of what is now called aces adverse childhood effects which would include how differently boys and girls are treated discrimination or violence and how this already affects a girl's a girl child's health so it isn't just later life health affected by external factors but the way a girl child is treated in childhood affecting her long term health as a child teen and adult then even her mental health factors like trauma or stress and it appears care is so essential to ensure health and access to reason resources stemming from care i totally agree as professor sangmitra mentioned uh, access to resources is crucial how do we imagine a politics of care so young children are doing better on aces access is something i'm thinking about and then she says uh, thank you everyone and thank you professor kelko for your insights experience and sharing too they resonate with me too about how there is difference how there is difference in how girl children are treated in comparison to boy children in patriarchal setups yeah professor over to you professor mitra over to you yeah thank you thank you so much dr singh uh, arjun you put up a very pertinent question the first thing to your uh, in your in the response to your query i would say that you know the kind of fear which has got generated we have to overcome that because fear is not going to take us anywhere and i say this very very crucially also because see at this stage when the second wave is already knocking at the door the community transmission of covid-19 has already taken place so if community transmission has already taken place it's now like any other cough and cold which we have been experiencing uh, for a very long time except for the fact that infectivity here is much higher that's the only difference right on the contrary fatality is so much lower also so the kind of fear which we have kind of been uh, you know laden with you know the moment you test positive you believe you are gone which yeah. is not the case 
you know, infectivity is certainly high, but there are ways to take care of infectivity. And that's the point I was making that it's mm. more than roughly, I mean, if I have to quantify about 92, 93% will be able to, uh, you know, be dealt with without hospitalization. It's about seven to 8% which needs hospitalization and about three to four, which needs critical care. So if that's where we are disaggregating this, why are we panicking? Mm. We're panicking perhaps the way we've had uh, to deal with the guidelines, the way we've had com many compulsive forms of, you know, every day, I'm sure if I, if I, I mean, we've done some kind of analysis of the guidelines. In a day, there was a stretch of about 10 to 12 guidelines coming from the ministry, from the state government, from local governments, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that is important to be over, kind of done away with. And for that, we really need some kind of, uh, you know, very stark campaigning over and above the kind of campaigning which is being done to say, put mask and do this. And put mask, why, is not there. You know, you, you're only being told to do certain things. Put mask for, yes, uh, in, in today's Delhi, I'm sure we probably will want to put mask to protect ourselves from pollution. Uh, as much as perhaps, uh, you yes. know, even if we are, uh, you know, in, not in the proximity of the individual. So that's one thing I think we need to overcome the fear that we have kind of gotten, rid, gotten on with. The other is, you very rightly say, when it comes to the subordinate level workers, the grassroots level frontier workers like ASHAs and ANMs, etc., etc., who have to go into the community to tackle the contacts, etc., etc., for them, it's important to bring on board the fact that they have all, uh, you know, uh, distance which is being maintained. And I, I refuse to call it social distancing. I'd rather call it disease distancing. Uh, uh, and the the sanitize uh, the kit for their uh, personal hygiene and sanity sanitization is really important. I mean, that's more of a logistic kind of a thing, but. Uh, Overcoming the fear is extremely important for them too, because they are the contact into the community, which are also therefore sharing with the community that, look, this is nothing that you have to be, you know, phobic about. It is there for sure. You have to take precautions, but not get, uh, you know, panicked about it. So I would probably put these two things as very important for us as members of the community. And from here, perhaps then the state has to take a call in revisiting the, the ways guidelines have been worded and phrased, et cetera. You know, if I have been tested positive, what is the need that a policeman should come and take me to the uh, quarantine center? Right. So somehow, and those are the stigmatization which has happened to the COVID-19 for me to have contracted and therefore I will not want the state to know about it. So instead of allowing me that kind of space wherein I would come forward to take support from the state, I have actually come back into my shell and I don't want to say that I'm COVID positive. Right. And we have stories of, uh, you know, I think it was Kutem. Where, uh, where these uh, Air Force, uh, these uh, Air India pilots, housing society, they were asked to move out of the house mm -hmm. uh, because they were the ones who were flying uh, in these uh, in these flights, bringing in people from countries outside. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so that's the kind of fear and stigma associated with it.
So I would want to say these are the two. Yes, especially um, this this problem of law and order becomes uh, very much in hinterland. So yes. people are yes, yes, especially uh, talking about it. You know, being open. Uh, many of the places where it has spread, people have really been quite as if stigma or some uh, some something of that sort. I think that is leading to more pockets uh, where it is spreading uh, fast. Uh, uh, again, I, I I see a very direct link of education there that you know at which level it is going, and uh, I think the the education of women uh, of almost half the population becomes very important uh, because. Uh, uh, they, they have a lot of role in it uh, uh, also for family and taking everything together, especially when the panic and this mode is coming. So nonetheless, uh, I, I think in this, sir, we can wrap or you, you can have, if you yeah, want yeah. to add anything. No, no, I think I, I, I just want to further, I think, uh, you know, say that when the Ministry of Home is run by the IPC, then the police take charge of everything, you know. <laughs> so this way the problem is in the country today. And uh, thank you for your fascinating um, uh, you know, uh, presentation, uh, as, uh, you know, Professor Govind Kekar mentioned, it's uh, very comprehensive and you touched almost all the areas. And uh, so thank you and congratulations for um, this excellent presentation. And uh, I think we'll share the recordings and everything with others also couldn't come today. And thank you, um, Dr. Sangamitra Sheelacharya. It was fascinating. And we'll have more discussion with in future also. We really learned a new word, disease distancing. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, very absolutely. good word. Yes, thank yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank, thank you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. Arjun, I'll share the slides with you in the mail, okay? Yes, we will yeah. upload it and share Thanks them. a l